بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على عبد الله ورسوله نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد so inshallah ta'ala we have uh, or we're going to continue with the explanation of kafi al-mubtadi and just to recap for everybody so that everyone is aware of what we're doing inshallah ta'ala this uh, text is a very basic text in the madhab of al-imam ahmad Rahimahullah ta'ala And as we said it's basic because of Three basic things or three fundamental things First of all it does not contain any ikhtilaf Any disagreement in it Secondly it does not contain any dalil in it There's no evidence in it that says that This is the reason why or this is the hadith or this is the ayah Salam And Thirdly, it doesn't contain a lot of detail. It doesn't contain, you know, the, the rare masail, the issues that you probably wouldn't use every day. It contains the, the things that are sort of the most important thing for a student to learn. And upon this you build. Now we mentioned again that just because we are studying this does not mean that this is the rajah, this is the correct opinion in the mas'ala. Rather, we're going to read things that I can almost guarantee to you are the wrong opinion in the Masala. But the purpose of studying from the books of the Madahib is not to get the right answer, but to have a consistent answer to the questions or to the issues at hand, and then to build upon that and to have the usul of the Imam and everything matched together like a curriculum. And then as you progress, you yourself will move away from certain issues and prefer certain opinions over others. It's worth noting, and I, and I do think this is, um, this is something we probably mentioned or we might have mentioned in Usul al-Fiqh, uh, which I think is important. Traditionally, it's always been said that a person is either a muqallid or a mujtahid. And a person is either following the opinions of others or they are making their own opinions. The reality of the situation is that it's not a light switch which is on or off. It's not like a case where yesterday I was a muqallid and today I'm a mujtahid. And yesterday, I didn't know any, I didn't have the ability to make any opinion by myself at all on anything. And then today, in every mas'ala from the masail of fiqh, I'm able to make my own opinion based on the dalil without referring to any of the scholars who have previously come. Reality is it doesn't work like that. It is a shaded scale from black to white which goes through many 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 different shades many different levels and that has or and it's 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 probably the case that there is even a name 
for that middle area where you are engaged in tarjih and you're engaged in preferring opinions over others so you're not at the level where you can make an opinion without referring to precedent you're not at a level where you can make an opinion without referring to precedent but what you are at a level is where you can choose the opinion that most you feel most suits the dalil so you're not going to go and make your own it's not going to be that Muhammad Tim's, yani, Imam Ahmed said this, and Imam Abu Hanifa said this, and Imam Malik said this, and Shawkani said this, and Muhammad Tim says this. It's not going to be like that. But what it's going to be is that I prefer the opinion of so and so. And this marhala, which is sometimes called tarjih, Marhala to tarjih, the level where you prefer, or some people call it ittiba', that where you're fo- your follower, but you're not to this extent of, of blindly or of, of absolutely following one particular individual or absolutely following yani, the person that you ask. Because in taqlid, bear in mind that it doesn't mean that we have to follow one person for our whole life, yani. but it means that. The basic concept of taqlid is that I ask someone and I take what they say. So I could ask a different person every time. But the definition that makes me a muqallid is that when I ask that person, I take what they say. Uh, Or I refer to what they say. However, the one as you develop your knowledge in Islam, you first of all you you move away from this sort of lowest level of taqlid into something that that some of the scholars i mean still within the level of taqlid to a certain extent but it's closer to being something that we probably call tarjih where you basically evaluate the different opinions that exist you don't make a brand new one you don't say the four imams said this but i think all of the four imams are wrong and all of the scholars that preceded me and I have my own opinion on this. But what you do is you look at what those scholars have said and you look at the evidence and you prefer one opinion over the other. In a strict sense of the word, you could argue that this is still within the the boundaries of taqlid to a certain extent because it's not ijtihad. But it resembles ijtihad from an angle and it resembles taqlid from an angle. It resembles taqlid because ultimately you're still, you're still within the opinion that somebody else gave you. But it resembles ijtihad because it has an element of you, of you making choices and reasoning and coming to the correct decision. But you're making reasoning without, within a framework of what other people have said. So it resembles taqlid and it resembles ijtihad. And that is why in reality it is a third, it's a third category that sits in the middle between taqlid and between ijtihad. But even that is also not an absolute boundary. In other words, it is very common that you are an absolute muqallid in a certain issue, but you have a tarjih in another issue. So for example, when it comes to the Adhan, 
you have an opinion about a particular issue, a particular mas'ala within the masail of the adhan, how many words the adhan is and how many words the iqama is. And you have chosen what you believe to be the correct opinion. But when somebody asks you about praying on stolen land, in this, you don't have an opinion, you don't have a tarjih, you don't have a preferred opinion. What you have is you have only what you have been told. And my sheikh told, I asked my sheikh, my sheikh told me this, this is what I think. And even the mujtahid, as the scholars say, may resort to taqlid in certain circumstances. Even the mujtahid, the one who has reached the level where he is able or she is able to make or to derive their own opinions without referring to precedent, without referring to the opinions of anybody else, that individual may well resort to taqlid in certain circumstances. From those circumstances is they don't have the evidence or the books available to them. And so in this case, they resort to taqlid of the madhab or taqlid of their sheikh or their imam. And it may be the case that they have tried to derive the correct opinion but ended up in a tawaqqaf, yani without, without, without having any opinion, without, having a without being able to come to a conclusion. So what we need to understand from this is that this scale which goes through taqlid and then it goes through choosing among the opinions that already exist and it finally ends at deriving your own opinions. This scale of three is not, an, is not that you absolutely move from one to the other. But it is a scale with many, many shades between the beginning and the end. Every time that you study, you get a little bit closer towards the end. Every time you learn something new on a particular issue, you get a little closer towards the end. But it's not like people or like you might think when you read a book of maybe Usul al-Fiqh, where it seems like you know you just basically like completely on one side or completely on the other. You're either at zero percent or you're either at a hundred percent. And the issue isn't like that. So as we said, the issues we're gonna study here are from the point of view of the madhab and are not necessarily what I would make tarjih of or I would consider to be the, the rajih, the stronger opinion in, of the opinions that exist. Now, I had to make a choice today about where we should start because I'm very conscious that I want us to go over as many masail as possible. But also, if we stay at the beginning of the book, we will never uh, go beyond water and cleaning because it will take, it, it'll take until the end of the, any, uh, it'll take until the end of the time that we have available. So I thought what we would do is move one chapter onwards and begin with Kitab al-Salah. Again, because I want to, the, the purpose here is to give you the biggest overview possible. And to give you as much of an overview and an idea of how these books work so you can make a decision about which or about or you can learn how to work with these books and learn how to benefit from them inshallah kitab al-salah again uh, bear in mind that the explanation is of the book kafi al-mubtadi however we will 
read as a text from the shorter version of the book which is called Akhsar Al-Mukhtasarat for the simple reason that it's easier to teach from because it's in bullet point form. And we'll go back to Kafi Al-Mubtadi from time to time. So Kitab Al-Salah, the author begins by saying the five obligatory prayers are obligatory upon every Muslim mukallaf except the menstruating woman and the woman who is experiencing postnatal bleeding. The first thing the author says is the five obligatory prayers or the five prayers are obligatory. We understand from this, we understand from this that the five prayers are the only prayers that are obligatory and that in the madhab of Imam Ahmad, the witr and the two raka'ah before fajr and so on are not obligatory, are not obligatory. The five daily prayers are the only prayers which are obligatory. Who are those prayers for? That is Al-Fajr and Al-Dhuhr and Al-Asr and Al-Maghrib and Al-Isha. Who are they obligatory for? The author mentions three points. He says every Muslim, they're obligatory for every Muslim. Now this is important because we do not understand from this and this is why you need to take these books also from a teacher because it can be misunderstood easily that you could understand from this that the madhab of Imam Ahmed is that the kafir is not required to pray and that is not the case and the key word here is kulli muslim every muslim the intended meaning of every Muslim means to cover all the categories of people who are Muslim and not to exclude the kafir. The exclusion or inclusion of the kafir in the furu' of the sharia is a matter we've dealt with in usul al-fiqh. And you guys can go back to it there. We dealt with the inclusion of the kafir in the furu' of the sharia. In other words, is the kafir commanded to fast Ramadan? Is the kafir commanded to pray? Is the kafir commanded, for example, the kafir woman, is she commanded to wear the hijab? There is no doubt that the rajih, the correct opinion in this is that the kuffar are mukhatabin before sharia. They are required to implement the sharia in all of its forms. However, they are we do not invite them to do so because we cannot invite them to do so until they become, until they, you know, until they take at least the first thing that they have to do, which is to become Muslim. Why are they then required to do something they can't do? This is the question. Why is then a kafir required to do something that if they did it, it wouldn't be accepted from them? And he will bring the kafir to pray fajr. His fajr is not accepted. In the first place, from beginning to end, his fajr is not accepted. And yet he is, it's wajib for him to pray fajr. 
How do we reconcile between the fact that it's wajib for him to pray Fajr, but if he prays Fajr, la tasih, it's not accepted. This is a punishment from Allah That on the day of judgment, he will be punished for every salah that he missed, even though his salah, if he prayed it, it would not be accepted from him. This is an extra punishment from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he punishes the disbeliever by requiring them to implement every law of Islam. But since they are unwilling to bring the, yani the, the condition of that, it only increases in their punishment. And the example of this is the same as the person who refuses to make wudu. Are they required to pray or not? They're required to pray. They have to pray, right? But they just point blank refuse to make wudu. If they prayed, their prayer would not be accepted, but they're still blamed for not praying. That kafir refuses to bring the thing that they need to be able to pray. They've refused to bring the condition of the prayer, which is Islam. But they're still required to pray. And they're still required to implement all of the furu' of the sharia. And we are forbidden from assisting them to disobey Allah in these furu'. So you are forbidden from giving the kafir food in Ramadan. Because you are helping him to disobey Allah Azza wa Yes, he hasn't brought what he, his fasting will be accepted with. Because he's refusing to do the first thing he needs to do, which is to accept Islam. But you are not allowed to assist him in his disobedience. By saying to him, yeah, yeah, by all means you can eat, but I'm not going to eat. No, say to him, by all means you cannot eat and I'm not going to give you any food. You should become Muslim and you should complete your fast today. This is what is required from the kuffar. So you should not understand that the position of the madhab is that the Muslim is the only one required to pray. But what is meant by here is why do they mention the Muslim? Because they want to cover all of the categories of Muslim. What are the fiqhi categories of a Muslim? The, fiqh, the categories of a Muslim that relate to fiqh are things like the free man and the slave and the man and the woman. So when the author, generally when the books of the madahib want to deal with the issue of every man and woman and free man and every slave, what they do is they say, Kullu Muslim. Every Muslim. Because a slave may be a Muslim, a free person may be a Muslim, or a Muslim may be a free person or a slave, and a Muslim may be a man or a woman. So, Kullu Muslim, or here, Ala Kulli Muslim, means every category of Muslim. It does not discuss whether the kafir is included or not. That is a separate mas'ala from the masail of usul al-fiqh. Uh, and you can also say that it enters into some of the Messiah of, and it could enter into some of the, the issues of aqidah, and it also issue, enters into you know issues of fiqh as well. It's one of those issues that covers many is covered in many many topics, but generally in the books of usul al fiqh, uh, they would often speak about whether the kafir is required to follow the furu' of the sharia. There is no ikhtilaf that the kafir is required to follow. The usul of the sharia, and that the kafir is required to become Muslim. There is no disagreement in that. None of the scholars in the entire world said that it's okay for the kafir to remain kafir. And they all said that the kafir has to become Muslim. But they differed over whether 
the kafir is required to perform the individual acts. Yani they have not yet become Muslim. Are they blamed for not praying? Or do we say, no, no, it's okay, you didn't pray because you were not a Muslim. In reality, as any, many ayat and adilla for this. مَا سَلَكَكُمْ فِي سَقَرْ قَالُوا لَمْ نَكُمْ مِنَ الْمُصَلِّينَ وَلَمْ نَكُمْ نُطَعِمُ الْمِسْكِينَ وَكُنَّا نَخُوضُ مَعَ الْخَائِضِينَ What put you into the depths of hell? They said we didn't pray. And we didn't used to feed the miskin, And we used to behave any, ignorantly and foolishly with the people who are foolish. Those three things are from the furu' of the sharia. They're not from the usul. They're from the subsidiary matters in the sharia. They're not from the essential part of the sharia, which is they didn't say what put you in hellfire. We didn't say la ilaha illallah. So this is from the dalil that the kuffar are required to follow the khitab or the, the furu' of the sharia. So every Muslim, so the meaning of every Muslim is every male and female and every free person and every slave. Mukallaf. We already spoke about usul al-fiqh, about whether this is an appropriate word to use, taklif. And you heard Ustad Abdurrahman uh, and others any, talk about this issue as well. And we said that some of the scholars said that taklif is not the correct word to use. Because it, it basically says every burdened soul, everyone who is placed under a burden. And the scholars said taklif or being burdened makes it seem like the sharia is a burden. It's a horrible thing to have to do. It's like a weight on your neck that you have to pray. When in reality, the sharia is not a burden. It's a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. However, the scholars of fiqh almost universally use this word. So we're not going to get into the debate about whether it's a correct word or it's not a correct word or whether there's a better word for it. But in any case, what is meant by the word mukallaf? Two things are meant by the word mukallaf. Al-balig, al-aqil. Two things. Al-balig, the one who has reached puberty. And al-aqil. Who is al-balig? Who is the one who has reached puberty? These matters also are discussed in the, in the book about who is the one who reaches uh, puberty and generally, the, yani, briefly, yani, uh, there are signs of puberty in boys and girls and then there are signs of puberty which relate only to the girls such as the onset of menses. If any one of those signs of puberty are found then the person reaches puberty even if the others are not found yani for example uh, the boy has a wet dream he reaches puberty even if he doesn't have hair uh, around his private parts or even if he hasn't reached 15 years old or you know even if the other signs of puberty are not there or if he grows significant amount of hair uh, Yani on his private parts such that it needs to be shaved, he reaches puberty even if he has not had a wet dream and even if he has not reached 15 years old, and so on. 
One is reaching puberty. The other is al-aqil. And that is the opposite of al-majnoon. So the aqil is the one who is sane. The opposite of being insane. The one who is sane, the opposite of being insane. And covered in insanity is other things as well that relate to it. Other things that relate to it. You know, permanent insanity, temporary insanity, insanity that is caused by medication and so on and so forth. So at the moment, we have two conditions that are in reality, three conditions. The two conditions are Muslim Mukallaf. A Muslim who is burdened with the Sharia. However, in reality, these are actually three. A Muslim who has reached puberty, who is sane. So every sane Muslim that has reached puberty. However, there is an exception. And that exception from that group that we have to take out of that group are Al-Ha'id wa nufasa the woman who is in the state of menses and the woman who is in the state of postnatal bleeding, the bleeding that happens after, immediately after childbirth. And in the previous chapter, he explained what is meant by the ha'id and what is meant by the nufasa. We didn't cover it because it would have taken again the whole day to, to, to cover. Um, what is meant by the ha'id, when do you distinguish between ha'id and between istihada, between menses and between irregular bleeding and how long does postnatal bleeding last for and what happens if she's bleeding on the 41st day and all of that has covered in the, been covered in the previous chapter which we haven't, uh, we haven't covered ourselves but the woman who is in a state of menses not the one suffering from istihada so this is important just to note yeah, that there is a condition which resembles menses and resembles postnatal bleeding, but is not from them. It resembles it in the sense that blood comes from the same place. But it is not from them. The woman prays and she fasts, and it is permissible for her husband to be intimate with her. And that is known as istihada, irregular bleeding. And that is a long chapter, uh, again, in Bulugh al-Maram. If you want to go back to the videos, we have an explanation of what it is and what it isn't. Uh, but it's important to note because a woman should not presume that every time she has blood from that region, that that it means that she is ha'id, that that means she is on her menses. Rather, there are cases where of irregular bleeding and there are cases of menses and the two are different from one another. And the most important thing is that irregular bleeding does not stop her from praying, nor does it stop her from fasting. So the author now, by now, has mentioned the five prayers are obligatory upon every Muslim, mukallaf, we said that means the one who is sane and has reached puberty, except for the menstruating woman and the woman in, who is undergoing postnatal bleeding. This is his first point. His second point, the prayer is not valid from the one who is insane nor from the one who is younger than the age of Tamiz. 
Okay. The first one, the prayer is not accepted from the one who is insane. So if the one who is insane prays, then that prayer isn't, isn't valid, nor are they required to pray. So they are not required to pray. It's not wajib for them to pray. And if they pray, their prayer is not accepted because they don't know what they are saying or what they are doing. They don't have a consciousness. They don't have a niyyah uh, and so on and so forth. What is the mumayyiz? These are all terminology. You know, the, the hardest thing about understanding this book is just getting to grips with the fiqhi terminology. That's why I'm trying to cover as many chapters as possible because the terminology in each chapter will change. Now we're going to deal with something called al-tamiz or al-mumayyiz. And that is that generally we define people as adults or children, right? You're either an adult, in which case you have one of the signs of al-bulugh, of reaching puberty, or you're a child. You don't have one of the signs of reaching puberty. So you're either an adult or you're either a child. However, in fiqh, we don't, we actually dif divide children into two groups. We say, Tiflun mumayyiz or waladun mumayyiz, any a child who is mumayyiz and a child who is not mumayyiz, sagir, often we call them. Yani. We often call them as sagir. Yani the, the small child and the child who is discerning. So tamiz means discernment. It's a difficult word, but that's what it means. Yani. Discerning. In other words, the child is able to understand the difference of right from wrong. That is what the meaning of tamiz is. Yumayyiz bain al-ashya. And he knows the difference between praying and not praying. He knows the difference between having an intention and not having an intention. He knows the difference between halal and haram. That doesn't mean he knows everything about it. Like he knows that he doesn't, you know, doesn't mean he studied a book of fiqh. But he generally has the mental ability to understand the difference between something which is right and something which is wrong. So the small child who is not mumayyiz may make sajda, get up, run to the back, drink a glass of water, come back and go back straight into sajda again. Or maybe standing in the salah and, you know, like playing with their hands or looking up at the ceiling or anything like that. Because in the first place, they don't really recognize the seriousness of what they are doing, that they are actually praying a prayer and they have to pray it properly. And the scholars differed over... Uh, what is meant by it and to the best of my knowledge in the madhab of Imam Ahmed if I'm not mistaken there are two uh, broad uh, opinions one is five years old and one is seven years old and uh, to the best of my, I can't I don't recall the rajah in the madhab I don't recall the correct opinion in the madhab but there is uh, it's either five years old or seven years old and some of the scholars put an age on it. And of course, from other madahib, some of the scholars didn't put an age. They said you can't put an age on it because some children will become mumayyiz at a very young age. And some children, yani, they become at, an, at another age. Yani. Or perhaps it may be that the madhab is that the minimum is five and the maximum is seven. Yani. By the time you reach seven, you have to, the child has to be mumayyiz. Yani. Unless they have some sort of 
yani learning difficulty or, or psychological issue, the child has to be discerning by the age of seven years old. And we're going to come to the reason why uh, in a moment. So the prayer is not accepted from the small child who is not at the age of discernment. So a child is two years old and they make wudu and they pray with you. I mean, that in itself is, a, is not a bad thing, but their prayer is not accepted. So this is another issue about, you know, the issue of bringing them to the jama'ah and putting them in the middle of the saf and, you know, issues like that. He then goes on to continue to talk about the young child. He said, and with regard to the child, the wali of that child, the guardian of that child, must command him to pray at seven years old and hit him if he leaves it by the age of ten. So this is the next issue, which is that the, the wali, the guardian of that child, the father of that child, or the one responsible when the father is not there, like the mother of that child, or if the person is uh, under the guardianship of somebody else because their father and mother are not here, like an orphan, then whoever is their guardian of that child must command them to pray from seven years old hijri. And when they're at the hijri age of seven years old, the guardian must command them, encourage them, bring them to the masjid as long as they don't cause a problem for the other people praying. Again, this is in the madhab. The issue of whether you bring your young children to the masjid younger than seven is another issue. We can talk about that another time. But it is a requirement to bring your children to the masjid from seven years old, to encourage them to go from seven years old, as long as they will not cause a problem for the people who are praying there. And if they cause a problem for the people who are praying there, then it's a different, it's a different matter. And if you bring them and they run up and down the saf and they, you know, they make difficulties for people and they, you know, or they hit people or they you know, pick up things and make noises or they throw the masahif on the floor and stuff like that, then yani, the opinion is here that you have to teach them the respect of the masjid before you bring them. But from seven years old, you have to bring your child and encourage your child to pray. And that means if it's a boy, you have to encourage him to come to the masjid because that is the place of the salah for the men, is the masjid. So you have to bring him to the masjid. If it's a girl then you have to only encourage her to pray in the home and she can go to the masjid if she wishes. But from seven years old, you encourage, you command them every time, five times a day, not you command them for Dhuhr and Asr and tell them never mind about Fajr. When you're eight, when you're nine years old, we will tell you to pray Fajr. You tell them for Fajr time, you come in at Fajr time, you wake them up, you tell them it's Fajr, come on, let's pray Fajr, let's pray Fajr, come on, I'll take you out, let's go, let's pray Fajr. If they say no and they refuse, you don't punish them for it. You don't beat them, you don't scold them, you don't ground them, you don't take their toys off them. But you encourage them and the, the closer you get towards 10, the more you, the more, the stronger your encouragement is. So at seven years old, maybe the first time they say to you, you know, first day is seven years old, come on, let's pray for you, I'm tired. And maybe leave them. 
But by eight, nine years old, you're telling them three, four times, no, come on, come on, please, let's go, let's pray Fajr. And you're encouraging them. By the time they reach 10 years old, then you have to punish them if they don't pray. Any of the five daily prayers, you have to punish them if they don't pray them by 10 years old. The darb that is mentioned here, the, the, the beating or the hitting that is mentioned here is a hitting of education, not a hitting of pain. Any, the purpose is not to cause the child extreme pain and to beat them until they're black and blue. The purpose of the darb here is a ta'deeb, to educate them, to teach them that the prayer is something very serious. Why then? Why, why, why hit them at all? What is the uquba? What is the punishment of missing the prayer? What is the punishment of missing the prayer in the sight of Allah Azza wa Jal? And what will happen to you Yawm Al-Qiyamah if you are one of the people the prayer is obligatory for and you don't pray? Something very, very serious indeed and a very severe punishment. And in fact, the person may even leave Islam because they left the prayer as we're going to come to. So this being the case, you're basically educating the child. You're teaching the child that this is a serious thing and the punishment from Allah is going to be much, much worse by giving them a small amount of punishment from you so that they understand that this is something that Allah will punish them for very severely on the Day of Judgment. The purpose is not to cause them pain, to beat them, to cause them, you know, deform, to be deformed in the body or to cause them marks or to cause them, you know, like cuts and bruises and whatever. But the purpose is to educate them that this is a serious thing that Allah will punish you severely for on the Day of Judgment. So this is the purpose of hitting them if they do not pray by 10 years old hijri. Then the author talks about the ruling of delaying the prayer and the ruling of leaving the prayer. So he starts with delaying the prayer and he says it is haram to delay the prayer to the time of emergency. So we have to, again, we have to, you know, sometimes you have to take these little keys and undo these little terminologies. So now we have to understand what is the meaning of First of all, we know that the prayers have, and, and this is probably something that you could, you could level a criticism at the author perhaps and say that you should have told us about the prayer times before you told us about delaying it from, you know, but to be fair, that is the order that the fuqaha usually use. So, Every prayer has a beginning time and an end time. But in some of the madhahib, and from them the Hanbali madhab, there are certain prayers that have an, an obligatory end time and an emergency end time. The obligatory end time, you must pray the prayer before that obligatory end time finishes. However, if you pray the prayer in the emergency time, it's still accepted from you, but you're sinful for delaying the prayer. It's not considered to be qada. So these two prayers are asr and isha. They are asr and isha. So as for 
the Asr prayer. We're going to come to the author who's going to talk about the prayer times in a moment. And that the Asr prayer has a preferred or an obligatory end time and an emergency end time. The emergency end time is Maghrib. Yani the Adhan of Maghrib. You, if you pray Asr after the Adhan of Maghrib, yani after the, you heard the Mu'addin say Allahu Akbar, or after the time for Maghrib came, then you are doing Qada. You are praying the prayer after its proper time. If you pray the prayer before, if you pray the prayer before Maghrib, let's say 10 minutes before Maghrib, according to the Hanabila, you are praying in the emergency time. So what you are doing is haram. However, it is still considered to be praying within the time. It's not considered to be qada. It's not considered to be making up the prayer. And we're going to come to what the time is. Isha is the same. You guys know that Isha finishes after half of the night, for example. However, if a person prays Isha 10 minutes before Fajr, According to the Hanabila, they have prayed in the emergency time. Meaning they have, what they have done, their prayer is not qada. They have not made up the prayer. They have prayed within the time allowed, but they've prayed after the obligatory time. And therefore they are sinful, unless they have an excuse, they are sinful. But they have not yet done qada. They haven't made up a prayer that is late. They are sinful, but they are not... Uh, they have not delayed the prayer completely outside of its time. So what he's saying here is, it is haram to delay the prayer until the emergency time. So how about delaying the prayer after the emergency time? Yeah, need to the time of the next prayer. This is minbabi awla. This is more, more deserving of being haram. Except... Except, I'm going to go to this one from the. The reason I stopped there is to check something because there's, a, there's a, an issue with what is going to come next. He says, except the one who has the right to join between the prayers with the intention of joining. The one who has the right to join between the prayers with the intention of joining. Where the confusion is and what I wanted to check is here. The confusion is that you start thinking, but there is no way that you could be joining the prayer at the emergency time. The people who explain, or the sharh who explains this, he says, the meaning of this is nothing to do with the emergency time, but it goes back to, it goes back to the per permissibility of delaying the prayer. 
And it is allowed for you to delay the prayer if you are from those people who are allowed to join between two prayers. Who is allowed to join between two prayers? In the madhab, the one who is allowed is the musafir and the marid, the traveler and the sick person. Who is allowed to join between dhuhr and asr. So he allows dhuhr to go. Dhuhr goes there if, I mean, forget about emergency time. Many. Dhuhr has gone completely and Asr has started. But this person has the intention to join Dhuhr and Asr, Jam'u Ta'khir, joining by delaying the prayer to the Asr time. This person is allowed to pray Dhuhr and Asr at Asr time. But it's also sinful if they delay Asr, Dhuhr and Asr until the emergency time of Asr. That is the problem because he mentions waqt al-darura here. It becomes confusing because when you look at it, you, you initially think, hold on a second. Does that mean that I can't pray asr 10 minutes before maghrib unless I'm musafir? No. What he means is you can't pray asr 10 minutes before maghrib ever. And if you do so, you're sinful unless you have an excuse. However, you can delay dhuhr until asr if you are sick or you are a traveler, as long as you have the intention of delaying it. And it's not your intention that, oh, I'm not going to pray dhuhr. And then asr time comes and you think, oh, I may as well join between the two. You had the intention at dhuhr time. The reason I am missing dhuhr is because I am going to pray dhuhr with asr at asr time. The second one is broader. It covers the one who delays to the emergency time and he says, someone who is busy fulfilling a condition of the prayer which is expected to happen shortly. Okay. Someone who is busy fulfilling a condition of the prayer which is expected to happen within a short space of time. Mushtaghilin bishartin laha yahsulu qariban. Okay. Let's take that. First of all, he's busy. Okay, he's not busy with work. He's not busy with, you know, something, schoolwork, or, you know, he's not busy with his family or something like that. He is busy because he is trying to fulfill a condition of the prayer. Okay, what is a condition of the prayer? For example, covering the aura. And he went to put on his thobe. And he realized that it is something happened to it. It got damaged in the washing machine or whatever. It got ripped. And it is not covering his aura. So now he has to find something to cover his aura with. And because of this, him going to find something to cover his aura with that he can pray in, because of this, he ends up Delaying the prayer until the emergency time or delaying dhuhr until asr. With the condition that that thing is going to happen in a, a short space of time. Not the condition that, uh, you know, or it, it might take me three days to find. If it's going to take you three days to find, then you do your best and pray as you are. But if you think, no, within, yani, okay, it, dhuhr is about to finish, but by asr time, I'll be okay. 
For example, let's use a more common one, the water. Tahara, yani. So this is another issue, and the reason I didn't use this one is it gets into another mas'ala of when you make tayammum and when you don't. But he's busy fixing the water tap, and the water is going to come on within 10 minutes. It just needs, some, it just needs 10 minutes more fixing, so he delays it until the emergency, until the emergency time. On the condition that it is going to happen quickly. Not on the condition that he... Not on the condition that uh, it's going to... Or it might take three hours, it might take four hours. Make tayammum. It might take four hours and you don't have something to cover your aura. Find the best thing you have and do your best. Even if part of your knee is showing or whatever. But if you believe that that condition is going to happen within a short space of time... Like, I'm, I just asked my family to sew my thawb that got ripped. It got ripped, and it's showing the aura, and I gave it to someone to sew, but they're telling me, look, it's going to take 10 minutes for me to finish stitching it. And in that 10 minutes, the obligatory time for the prayer ended, then you can delay the prayer until, you know, for a short time, until you can uh, complete that stitching. That's what is meant here. Then he talks about the one who leaves the prayer. And the one who leaves the prayer in the books of fiqh is one of two people. Al-Jahid and Al-Kaslan. So Al-Jahid is the one who leaves the prayer saying that it is not obligatory either for the Muslims or it's not obligatory for him. So either he says it's not obligatory for the Muslims by saying that no Muslims have to pray. There is no such thing as prayer. Prayer means dua. There is no such thing as five obligatory prayers. And the second category of the jahid, the one who denies the prayer, is the one who says, yes, the Muslims have to pray, but I don't have to pray. Because I've reached a level of being near to Allah or whatever Or a level of iman that I don't have to pray my five daily prayers This person is kafir kufran, And the waliul amr is commanded to kill the person as a kafir Their body is not washed They are not inherited from Their money is seized for the bayt al-mal For the treasury of the Muslims They are not buried with the Muslims They are not given ghusl by ijma' in all of the madahib and outside of the madahib. Like, there is no difference of opinion that the one who says that there is no prayer or the one who says that I don't have to pray is kafir and that person is under threat or is deserving of being killed by the ruler, not by anybody else because only the ruler has the right to implement the hudud. Any the ruler or the one that he appoints. And if he appoints a policeman or he appoints a judge or he appoints an executioner or whatever. But the ruler or the one that he appoints. It's not allowed for you to like say, you know, my neighbor says I don't, he doesn't have to pray. Let me take the kitchen knife and, and he finish him off. This is not allowed. But he is kafir and he is in the madhab uh, and indeed in all of the madhahib. And he, in all of the four madhahib, it's a matter of ijma'ah. Yuqtalu kufran He is killed as a kafir In all of the madahib With no disagreement among them For the one who is al-jahid The one who denies The obligation of the prayer And he says there is no prayer For any Muslim 
or he says there is no prayer for me Muslims have to pray but I don't have to pray however are they killed immediately no yustatab yani they are given time to make tawbah because you don't just you know say to them the ruler doesn't bring them and say okay do you have to pray he says no 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 there's no prayer off with his head Rather, the ruler will then appoint one of the scholars to educate this person about why they have to pray. And if after, in the madhab, three days, if after three days the person continues to say that I don't have to pray, then the person is killed as a kafir by ijma' by consensus. As for the one who is kaslan, he's lazy, mutahawin, he's like, he's basically easy you know takes it easy you know he's like saying that nah i you know i have to pray but i'm not gonna pray now be careful here that we define very precisely who this person is this person is not the person who makes up their prayers at the end of the day this is a person because the person who makes the prayers up at the end of the day the prayer you can say the prayers are invalid there is no qadr that's another issue but the person doesn't come under this ruling. This ruling is the person who says, I am intending that I'm not going to pray dhuhr. I have no intention of praying dhuhr. No intention. I'm not going to pray. Or he says, I'll pray it at the end of the day. And the end of the day comes, he says, no, I'm not going to pray dhuhr today. That is the person who is the lazy one or the one who is lenient and, and relaxed about praying the prayers. In the madhab, the correct opinion in the madhab of Imam Ahmed He is killed as a kafir And he is kafir He is not washed, his body is not washed His wealth is seized by the Bayt al-Mal He is not buried by, uh, among the Muslims There is no janazah For the one who does not pray five times a day Out of laziness And in the madhab There are two riwayat from Imam Ahmed in this. Yani. This is one of the issues there is ikhtilaf in the madhab on. But the, the, the standard opinion in the madhab, yuqtalu kufran, there is no difference between him and between the one who says that there is no prayer. So he is to be killed as a kafir. Even if he says that Muslims have to pray and I wish I could pray, but I'm not going to pray, yuqtalu kufran, he is killed as a kafir. Okay, let's see if I missed anything out of. Okay, there is one issue. Because I have so many different texts here. There is one issue. Again, the one who, the same issue about the one who is lazy is the same issue about the jahid. He is yustatab and he is given a chance to make tawbah. And he is told, look, you have to make tawbah. This is kufr akbar. You're going to leave Islam. Every Muslim has to pray. You have to pray five times a day. And if he makes tawbah, it's accepted from him. And if he doesn't make tawbah, then the position of the madhab is that he is kafir. Okay, there is an issue mentioned in Kafi al-Mubtadi that we haven't covered yet, which is... 
the issue of the one who it becomes obligatory on them to pray in the middle of the prayer time. And this is an important issue. So this is during the time of Dhuhr or in the Madhab during the time of the prayers that can be combined. So for example, I'll give you a practical example of this. A lady is menstruating. She finishes her menses 30 minutes after the Asr Adhan. 30 minutes after the Asr Adhan. She has to pray Dhuhr and Asr. Why? Because Dhuhr here, Dhuhr here has not the time for Dhuhr in terms of joining between has not ended. Because you can join between Dhuhr and Asr in certain situations. So she needs to pray Dhuhr and she needs to pray Asr. Likewise, uh, the issue here they talk about what about if a uh, a person reaches the age of puberty during one of the prayer times and in the, here it mentions uh, this person has to pray again and he has to pray their prayer again and if there isn't time to get the water they make tayammum now this can be very practical, especially with regard to the, to the women, uh, that this is an issue that I got asked about recently, is what does a woman do if she is out of the house? And while she's out of the house and she's gone, let's say, she might have gone camping, she might have gone to the park, she might have gone, you know, to, uh, she might have gone uh, to work or she might be in school and the school, you know, doesn't let you leave or whatever. And she finishes her menses at that time. And she can't get home to make ghusl. And there is nowhere to make ghusl suitable for her. There's nowhere covered that she can make ghusl. I mean, there's no private area she can make ghusl. There's no, no private shower that she can use. So now what does she do? In the madhab, she makes tayammum. She makes tayammum for the, she makes tayammum for the ghusl. And the wudu, she makes as normal. She makes tayammum in, in place of ghusl and the wudu she makes as normal but she has to what does she have to do? She has to go back and make ghusl she can't rely upon that tayammum once the water becomes available because from one of the reasons of tayammum is being unable to use the water one of the reasons of tayammum is being unable to use the water and the water is there but I'm, I can't use it and one of the reasons a woman can't use water is if she can't use it in private and the water is there, she can take a big bucket of water, but there is nowhere that she can shower privately. There is no private room, there is nowhere she can shower privately. So she has no choice but to make tayammum because she's unable to use the water. And then to make wudu as normal for her, uh, for her prayer. And then when she goes home, to make ghusl as soon as she reaches the home. That is if she cannot make ghusl, in the time of joining between the prayers. If she can make ghusl in the time of joining between the prayers, what ruling does she come under? The one that we just spoke about. Mushtaghilun bishartin 
She comes under the ruling of someone who is busy with a condition of the prayer which will happen soon. And if she's, she says, oh, I can reach home. Now it's the whole time. I can reach home before Asr will end. And I can make ghusl and I can pray. In this case, she does not have to make tayammu. In this case, she can go home and make ghusl. If the time is going to end, that's going to come. It's going to come, inshallah. If the time is going to end, he's going to talk about that, inshallah. Ta'ala. If the time is going to end. If the time is going to end, uh, I'll find a bit where he talks about it. Okay, it's, gonna, it's coming, inshallah. Ta'ala. It's coming in the time of the, the prayer times. He's going to talk about it. If the prayer time is going to end completely, then she makes tayammum. But the issue is, what about if she goes into the time of darura? No, she doesn't make tayammum. If it's in the time of darura, the emergency time, then she, if she can pray the full prayer before the emergency time finishes, then she makes ghusl and she performs the full, she performs the full prayer. So this is one that I got asked about recently, and it's something that is, you know, it is from the masail. It's not, it's not as rare as you might think. You might think, really, does somebody really reach puberty in the middle of, you know, the dhuhr prayer and then have to re repeat it? You know, like it's not expected to be uh, likely in that way. But there are examples that, are, that do happen. Yani that is something that does happen. The women go out, maybe, you know, in the mall or something. She's just gone out shopping. She went out to buy something. And she realized that her menses ended at that time. Now, what does she do? Because she doesn't have anywhere to make ghusl. So if she can reach back before the end of the, uh, the, the second prayer time, any the joining prayer time or the emergency prayer time, then she can go home and she can make ghusl and she can pray. And if not, then she makes tayammum and she prays and she goes back and makes ghusl at the earliest opportunity, but she doesn't have to repeat the prayer unless the prayer time is still uh, in, is still in yani, if the prayer time is still in. So for example, an example of that, she made tayammum and she prayed asr because the traffic would, there's no way she will get home in that traffic. But she didn't remember the school is not, yani the school is not on on that day and there was no traffic. Yani. So she reached home before the time of asr, right, ends. She made ghusl and she still has time, then she repeats the, she repeats the prayer. This is ala khilaf, yani there's a masala khilafiyah as always, and it's an issue of ikhtilaf. But it's to the best of my knowledge, that is the madhab. Yani. Okay. So that has that is dealt with the topic of the conditions of the prayer. The next topic that the author deals with is the adhan and the iqama. Again, you could kind of say, you know, shouldn't we have talked about the prayer times yet? And still we haven't talked about the prayer times, but we've talked about the conditions for the prayer, we've talked about delaying the prayer, and we've talked about the adhan and the iqama. But in any case, that is generally the order, that is one of the, you know, the well-known orders that the, the scholars of fiqh use. So he says, The adhan and the iqama are farda kifayah. على الرجال الأحرار المقيمين 
للخمس المؤدات والجمعة. So he says, the adhan and the iqama are fard kifaya. So another piece of terminology we should be aware of. There are two types of fard. Fardu ayn and fardu kifaya. Fardu ayn is an individual obligation and fardu kifaya is a collective obligation. What's the difference between the two? A collective obligation is an obligation that if enough people do it, there is no need for anyone else to do it. The, the requirement to do it is no longer there. If enough people do it. And if enough people don't do it, the sin is upon everyone. Okay? All right. As for an individual obligation, it is individually upon every individual to do it. And if everyone in the world does it but you, you're still sinful. So the adhan and the iqama are fard kifaya. So they are a collective obligation. If we say for the people in this area, in these houses around us, they only need one adhan to be able to hear the prayer time, then it is enough for simply one a person to give the adhan It's not necessary for everyone around To give the adhan If however there is an area Where nobody hears the adhan Everyone is sinful Unless somebody gives the adhan To the best of their ability Because of course you can have issues of ability there You can have countries where they forbid you from giving the adhan And you know situations Particular buildings where they, forgive you for, they, they forbid you From giving the adhan and things like that Providing those things are not there, you're allowed to do the adhan, then somebody has to do the adhan so that everyone has an opportunity of hearing the adhan. However, who is it that has to do that? There are certain conditions. The first is for it to be obligatory, they must be men. So it's not required and it's not obligatory for a woman to give the adhan or for us to be concerned that there are a group of women that don't have an adhan and that's not an issue it's upon the men and the issue is for the men al-ahrar the free men so it's not a requirement if there is a let's say there are a group of slaves working in the desert it's not required it's not a requirement that they should have an adhan it's not a requirement they have to pray but it's not a requirement that they should have an adhan. And they should be muqeemeen. And the muqeem is the opposite of the musafir, the opposite of the traveler. So they should be resident. As for the traveler, group of travelers, it's not required for the travelers to give the adhan. Or for the travelers necessarily to hear the adhan. So you go in a big group of travelers and you're, you know, you're traveling to some place. It's not a must that you must give the adhan. If you give the adhan, there is no harm. But it's not a requirement for them to give the adhan. For the five daily prayers and Jumu'ah. The five daily prayers and Jumu'ah. So there is no adhan for Eid. There is no adhan for the eclipse prayer. There is no adhan for istisqa, seeking rain. The most that there is, is the mu'adhin will call out, as-salatu jami'ah. The prayer is going to be prayed in congregation. 
So the Mu'addin will simply call out at the top of his voice, As-salatu jami'ah. The prayer is going to be prayed in congregation. That's it. There is no adhan. The adhan is only for the five daily prayers. Then the author talks about the people that the adhan is not accepted from. Or the or sorry, not the people. The conditions with which the adhan is not would not be accepted without. And it is not accepted unless it is. And he mentions one, two, three, four, five, six, seven conditions. It is not accepted unless it is. Murattaban in order. So it's not accepted for someone to say, Hayya ala Ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, la ilaha illallah. It is only accepted if it is in order. Mutawaliyan, consecutively. So it is not accepted, and in Kafi al Mubtadi he explains this further. It is not accepted if there is a break in between, which is of a significant length. If he's just getting his breath or he's just, you know, scratching an itch or something like that, there is no issue. But if there's a long break in between, such as that he says, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, and then he remembers that something is outside or someone asks him, is it Maghrib time? And he turns around and says, well, it's Maghrib time, I think. Shall we check the timetable? And then two, three minutes goes by, he has to give the adhan again. It's not the case that he can resume where he left off. Likewise, they mention if it is, if uh, rude or haram words are used in between the adhan. You know, for example, the mu'addin is giving the adhan, especially, you know, in a non-Muslim country. And someone comes up to him and calls him something. So he, you know, swears at them or he says, he, he says a bad word to them or he, you know, says some haram speech or he gets in a fight with them or something like that. Again, you know, this is from the things that the Hanbalis mentioned, break the adhan. He has to give the adhan from the beginning. Manwiyan with niyyah. With a niyyah, with the intention. Min dhakar, from a male. Because the adhan from a female, la tasih, la yasih. Al-adhan is not valid from a female. And if she gives the adhan, the adhan is not valid. Whether she gives it, yani, uh, yani to uh, yani her, like herself or to anyone else, yani, the adhan from her is not valid. And again here, mumayiz. So according to the, to the madhab, the adhan from a, from a child who knows what they're doing is valid. The adhan from a child who knows what they're doing is valid. But the adhan from a child who doesn't know what they're doing is not valid. So you can't ask your three-year-old or four-year-old child to give adhan. It's not considered to have done the job. Even if they give the adhan and even if the adhan is heard by the houses around, it's not considered to be valid. But as for the child who is mumayyiz, let's say he's... 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old, the adhan from them is accepted. Adlin walaw zahira. Someone who is adl, 
they are reliable or trustworthy, even if it is in the apparent sense, meaning that you don't need to investigate the, you know, the inner details, but you do need to know that the person is trustworthy. Why? Because you are relying upon this individual to tell the people that they can pray. Based on this adhan, there are going to be women in their houses who are going to start the prayer. And if he's not trustworthy and reliable, then the issue, the danger here is that people are going to start praying when it's not prayer time. And people are going to break their fast when it's not time to break the fast. And people might, you know, refrain from eating when it's not the time to refrain from eating. And so on. So it is a condition of the adhan that the person should be idle. And this takes out the fasiq. The one who is a, an open disobe disobeyer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, openly disobedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the one who is openly disobedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the madhab, the adhan is not accepted. The adhan is not accepted. And it must be after the time of the prayer, except for fajr. We have to stop on this for a second. After the time of the prayer. So you can see these books, like they're just few words. I've probably only read 50 words so far in the whole lesson. But there's a lot of explanation that goes into it. After the time. Meaning that you cannot give the adhan. The adhan is not valid if it was given before the time. If you gave the adhan before the time, you have to give it again after the time. Because the adhan before the time is not valid. Accept the Adhan of Fajr since the Sunnah is to give two. And in the Madhab, it's valid after half of the night. The first Adhan of Fajr is valid after half of the night. But is preferred to be at a fixed time that everybody knows before the second Adhan. So they said it, it can be any time after half the night in the Madhab. After any time after, after half the night, you can give the first Adhan of Fajr. Even one o'clock in the morning, you can give the first Adhan of Fajr. But they recommend it to be at a fixed time every day before Fajr. Meaning that everyone knows one hour before Fajr, we give the Adhan. Or one hour and a half, or 45 minutes, or two hours, whatever it may be. But it's a fixed time that everybody knows. So that people know, do I have time to pray Witr or not? Do I have uh, time to eat or not? Do I have time to pray to Hajjud and Witr or just Witr on its own? It should be at a fixed time prior to the real Adhan or the second Adhan of Fajr. Someone might ask the question, why not mention Jumu'ah? Why not mention Jumu'ah? This is one I, just think, think about it for 10 seconds. We'll see how well you know the Hanbali Madhab now. Have a think about it, Jani. Why is Jumu'ah not mentioned here? Why is it not said that it is valid before it's valid before Fajr and it's also valid before Jumu'ah? There's only two options you can say, but you probably probably most people would think of the wrong one. Most people would think that the Hanbalis don't do two adhans for Jumu'ah, but they do two adhans for Jumu'ah. The issue is that in the Hanbali Madhab, Jumu'ah is valid before Zawal. Yani you can pray Jumu'ah at 10 o'clock in the morning. Even though they prefer it to be after Zawad, they prefer it to be at Dhuhr time. In the Madhab, you can pray 
at 8 o'clock in the morning, anytime after shuruq. So for them, the first adhan is not outside of its time. And the first adhan is in the time of Jumu'ah. The first adhan of Jumu'ah is inside the time of Jumu'ah. It's not outside of the time of Jumu'ah. Because for them, you can pray Jumu'ah anytime from shuruq until asr, as opposed to others who said only from zawal until asr, and only from uh, the basically dhuhr time, dhuhr until asr. Uh, as for the Hanbalis, they said you can pray it in the morning. They all have adillah, they all have evidences. I know no evidences are mentioned here. I'm not saying those evidences are strong or not strong or are rajih or, or marjuh, but they, they have, yani, they are not basing it off of yani, like thina. Yani. They base it on the hadith uh, that uh, we used to come from Jumu'ah, we used to come out from Jumu'ah, and we would not find any shade to stand in. And they said the time that you will not find any shade to stand in is before Dhuhr. Because when Dhuhr starts, you will find shade to stand in. It's impossible that you can pray Jumu'ah and then leave Jumu'ah and have no shade to stand in. That is what they said. So they said, based on this, you can pray. They said that the Sahaba must have prayed at 11 in the morning or whatever, because that is the only time that you could have prayed and come out and had no shade. Others said no. In the peak of the summer, even at 1 o'clock, half past 1, there is no shade in the peak of the summer. And they... Any, there is a, any difference, a well-known difference of opinion in that. But that is why, to the best of my knowledge, that is why Jumu'ah is not mentioned in the list of the Adhan that you can give early. Because for them, the, anything after Shuruq, anything after sunrise is considered to be within the time that is allowed for Jumu'ah. Even though they dislike praying Jumu'ah before the time of Dhuhr. Then he goes on to talk about some of the sunan, the recommended acts for the adhan or the recommended things that should be there for the adhan. He said it is recommended that the mu'addin should be sayyita. He should have a loud, clear voice. If he doesn't have a loud voice, the adhan is valid. But he should ideally have a loud, clear voice. He should be aminan. He should be trustworthy. Now, there's a difference here. In the, in the previous condition, he said Adil. Adil is a very specific shara'i term. The term Adil is a very, very specific shara'i term. And when we go and do bay and shira, we do transactions and business in the next uh, module. We're going to talk about the exact meaning of Al-Adil. When we talk about Nikah and things like that. So al-adal is a very specific term, whereas amin is a very loose term. Amin is someone who, you know, like they, they are very trustworthy in themselves. But it's not measurable, right? Like how do you measure someone is amin or not amin? It's like, it's not easily measurable, like in, sort of by a judge. You bring in front of a judge, okay, how do I know you're amin? All he can do is say, speak to my friends, speak to my business partner, speak to my wife, speak to my children. They will tell you I'm amin. But Adil is very measurable. That's the difference between the two. The Adil, the, the previous one, like the, the valid, we could almost say a valid, like someone who's valid to be a witness. So the Adil is someone who's not a fasiq. He doesn't disobey Allah publicly 
and openly in front of the people. Or it's said that he doesn't, he's not known to do major sins. That is al-adl. And that's one of the definitions of al-adl, that he's not known for doing major sins. So if he's known for doing major sins, then he is not adult. Even if he is a very, you know, I mean in himself, like he may be very trustworthy in himself, he may be a very sort of, you know, reliable guy that when you tell him, meet me at 9 o'clock, he always comes at 8.59, and he may be like that. But if he is doing a major sin, and that is known to the people that he does a major sin, or it's known to the people that he consistently does a minor sin, then this person is not adult. So adal is something mundabit, it's something that you can measure and you can, you know, you can, you can judge. You can bring someone in front of a judge and you can quite easily determine whether someone is adal or not adal. Yani whether they are valid to be a witness or not valid to be a witness. As for just general trustworthiness, this is a bit more fuzzy and a bit harder to measure. And that's why, and Allah knows best, they made being adal a condition of the adhan and they made being ameen a sunnah of the adhan. Yani from the, and also you may not find always yani, amana is a level higher than adal. Adal you may find in many people. But amana, especially towards the end of time, is something you, will, you might not be able to find, sadly, in every masjid, a mu'adhin who is amin. Because amana is something that, as we know, towards the end of time it will, it will go until somebody says, travel to this city, for indeed in this city there is one man who is Amin. And that is to the extent that the Amana will be lost. But as for Adala, like basic sort of validity as a witness, you know, sort of basic uh, trustworthiness as a Muslim, as a witness, that uh, Adala is found in many people. And it's also something that is measurable, or easily measurable. And the third sunnah for him to be knowledgeable about the prayer times why is this a sunnah and not a fard because if he's not knowledgeable but he bases his adhan upon someone who is like he follows the prayer timetable or whatever then he's suitable to be a mu'adhin but the sunnah is for the mu'adhin to be someone who is alim about prayer times He's extensively studied the prayer times and he knows when they start and when they don't and he knows the inaccuracies in the clock timetables and he knows the correct opinion about when Fajr starts and he knows what isn't Fajr and he knows the differences opinion among the scholars. This is from the Sunnah. From the Wajib is he can just give the prayer, he, he doesn't mess it up any. From the Fard is that he doesn't give the Adhan at the wrong time completely any. But from the Sunnah is that he is a Alim about the issues of the prayer times. Then the author goes on to talk about the one who is joining between prayers or making up missed prayers. What do they do with the adhan and the iqama? He says, as for the one who joins or makes up missed prayers, they make the adhan for the first and they make the iqama for every prayer. So if you're going to join between the prayers, for example, you are joining between the prayers because of severe rain. Or you're joining between the prayers because you guys are traveling and you want to do the sunnah of giving the adhan, even though it's not wajib for you to give the adhan in the madhab if you're a traveler. 
So you want to you wanna give the, uh, the, the adhan when you're traveling? You give one adhan and two iqamas. Or you're making up missed prayers as a group. As an individual, it's different. And as in, this is why this, not all of the issues are in here. Should the individual making up missed prayers give the adhan or not? This is not mentioned in this. This is a more sort of nuanced issue. Like if I'm just on my own making up missed prayers, should I give an adhan or, or not? That's a different issue. But let's say as a group, we missed a prayer. And that can happen. That can happen. Very commonly it happens at Hajj. Like loads of times I've seen it happen at Hajj. Where for whatever reason, you know, difficulties, problems, uh, transportation, traffic jams, whatever, people have, you know, people making the wrong decisions, whatever. And have as a group missed the press. Or like the example of the Prophet ﷺ when he missed Fajr with the Sahaba when they all slept in as a group. The Adhan is only for the first if you've missed more than one. The Adhan is only for the first and the Iqama is for every prayer. Then he goes on to talk about the Sunan for the Mu'addin and the one who hears the Mu'addin. So he says from the Sunan, from the voluntary deeds for the Mu'addin is for the one who hears the mu'addin to repeat quietly after the mu'addin. And for the, for the one who hears the mu'addin to repeat quietly. So the mu'addin says, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. The sunnah is for the person listening to say, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And not to shout it out like the adhan, but to say to themselves, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Except in the Hay'ala, the Hay'ala, Hay'ala Salah, in which case he should say the Hawqala. So you need to learn these little terms, yeah, for those of you who don't speak Arabic. Each of these phrases we say, like you know, when we say, La ilaha illallah, this has an, you know, a name for it. Subhanallah, and of course, known as Tasbih, Takbir. Tahleel, la ilaha illallah. But there's also a term for these longer phrases. So the hay alatain or the hay alatan are the two times that you say hayya ala salah, hayya ala falah. And the hawqala is when you say la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. So when you hear the hay ala, hayya ala salah, you say the hawqala la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. Again, something I want to very quickly check because I don't think he mentions this in the. Hmm. Oh, he does mention it in Kafir. Okay. And as for At-Tathweeb, when he says, As-Salatu Khayrun Min An-Nawm, in the Madhab, again, the uh, correct thing to say in the Madhab is Sadaqat wa Barirat. Sadaqta wa barirta, sorry. 
صدقت وبررت صدقت وبررت Sadaqta wa barirta, the meaning of it is you have been truthful when you said that prayer is better than sleep. You have been truthful. And you have become bar, and you have become obedient and pious, you know, and, and you have done what Allah has required you to, to do. That is, of course, in the madhab, and that is the mashhur from the madhab. As for whether it is the correct opinion, that is a different matter. As many of them said, that the correct opinion is that you say as-salatu khayrun min an-nawm, and there is no evidence for saying sadaqta wa barirta. However, in the madhab, when he say, when the muaddin says as-salatu khayrun min an-nawm, you say sadaqta wa barirta. You have told the truth, and you have become a person of bir, a person of good, good deeds, or may you become a person of good deeds. From the Sunan is to send salah upon the Prophet after finishing the Adhan. This comes a lot in this book. And to say what has been reported. What do they mean by that? Because it's a summarized book, they're not going to give you all of the du'as that you have to say. Say this du'a, say this du'a, say this du'a. They're just going to say, say the du'as that are, yani say the dhikr which is reported in the sunnah. And then in the other longer books, they will define what that dhikr is. For example, Allahumma rabba hadihi da'wati tamma wa salati al-qa'imah until the end of the du'a and the other, thing, the other dhikr and du'a which is mentioned. And he says from the sunnah is a du'a. You need to make du'a after the adhan. Because du'a between the adhan and the iqama is accepted. It's one of the times when it is accepted. And that is, you know, incidentally, like outside of the madhab, yani I really want to talk about this. From the signs that you know a person is from the people of the sunnah, is you see them raising their hands in du'a between the adhan and the iqama, but not doing it after the prayer. Because the correct time to do it is between the adhan and the iqama, not to do it after the prayer has ended. After the prayer is ended, the correct thing to do is the, the adhkar. The, the fixed adhkar which have been mentioned like saying subhanallah and alhamdulillah uh, and allahu akbar and all of the, you know, reading the, the, the surahs of ayatul kursi and the, the mu'awwidat, mu'awwidatain and so on and so forth. These are from the, the sunnah after the prayer. But bef- between the adhan and the iqama is a time for, a time for dua. And then he mentions his last point on the issue of the adhan and he says it is haram to leave the masjid after the adhan unless you have either an excuse or the intention to return. So this is for the one who is in the masjid. The one who is inside of the masjid. It is haram for that person to leave the masjid. It's haram for that person to leave the masjid Unless one of two things apply. They have an excuse, like they became sick. And they need to leave the masjid. Or they have the intention of returning to that masjid.
Let's see if we missed anything from Kafi and Mubtadi, because sometimes when we read from one, we miss some from the other. Okay. Uh, one issue that we that he mentions in Kafi al-Mubtadi is the tartil of the adhan, the hadar of the iqama. Is that the adhan should be done very slowly and the iqama should be done quickly. So we know this happens in every masjid. Yani the adhan is done uh, somewhat slowly and the iqama is done somewhat quickly. So the adhan, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And the iqama is more like Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. So the, the adhan is slowly and the iqama is quickly. This is from the, included in the sunan. And from inclu, included in the sunan is to turn right when you say hayya ala salah and left when you say hayya ala falah. This is something the scholars differ over how you do it. Some said you go all the way around with each. But in, the, in this madhab, hayya ala salah is to the right and hayya ala falah is to the left and putting uh, your fingers in your ears also from the sunnah So those are the issues that are in Kafi al-Muftadi that are not in, this, in the shorter uh, version. Okay, one more chapter, inshallah ta'ala, and then we're going to stop for today. Again, what I'm trying to do is to give you a sample of, of some different chapters. Today we're just focusing on salah, but next time, because we want to give you the term, mostly it's the, ter, it's the terminology and it's how to deal with the book. That's the most important thing. Unfortunately, yani, sometimes we wish we could have longer time, but... Just to put it into context, the reason why we do it like this in the essentials, if you look at Bulugh al-Maram, we've been doing Bulugh al-Maram for approximately maybe two and a half years, something like that. And in that two and a half years, we've only just reached Salatul Jama'ah, the prayer, the congregational prayer. So that just shows you how long it would take if you went through every single issue. The quickest you can go through Kafi al-Mubtadi, the quickest explanation, is, and the one that I, I really enjoy is the explanation of Sheikh Dr. Abdullah bin Ibrahim al-Zahim, Hafizahullah. Uh, and he, the quickest he did it is in two weeks of approximately, roughly, roughly three hours, three hours a day. Two weeks, three hours a day. I mean, approximately. There or thereabouts. And I think it comes into it comes roughly somewhere around fifty hours of, of teaching. And that's the quickest that you can go through Kafi al Mubtadi from beginning to end. And he goes through it like quickly. And he doesn't pause in the whole one and a half hours he's teaching. He just says, and the conditions of the validity of the prayer are six. Being and just like he, he stops every now and again if the word is not clear, but then he just keeps going. And that took like fifty hours. So for that reason, we, we, we just want to go over mostly terminology and we want to be able to answer the questions we asked at the start. However, what I am going to do is go into a bit more detail in the transactions because I think that most of you are relatively familiar with things like prayer 
and Hajj and fasting. But I think when it comes to transactions, this is where most people have probably never even attended a class on nikah and talaq and bay'ah and shira, buying and selling, and you know, like all of these, uh, yani these related issues. Yani, that most people have probably never even attended a class on it. So that's why I'm giving that the full four weeks next, uh, next time. So we at least have eight full hours to go through as much as possible. Because many people will never have attended any class on the topic of the second half of fiqh. Almost everybody gets in the first half of fiqh and the second half is like only really dedicated students get there because ultimately, if I said it took me of, of one hour a week, it's taken me like two years just to get towards the end of Kitab al-Salah, the end of the, the book of prayer, then imagine how long it will take before you get to the end of Hajj. And maybe another three years we'll be at the end of Hajj. And if Allah makes it easy, any. And then after that, to start transactions and finish them, and it can be another four or five years. So it's really a person who's, you wouldn't expect many people unless they've studied extensively. You know, they've studied for five, six, seven years part-time or maybe three, four years full-time. You would not have expected them to have covered the topic of uh, buying and selling and trade and marriage and divorce and transactions and oaths and promises and judgments and all of those things that come in the second half of the uh, of the topic of fiqh so i'm going to give that more attention because i think that most of us will not have covered anything on that at all uh, and that's why i'm, I'm going to give it more attention but this one i'm just going to cover some points and probably next week we might do a little bit of zakah uh, because again zakah is might be one where most people don't uh, have a great amount of knowledge as opposed to fasting and Hajj and Umrah, where people probably have a little bit more. So, we come on to our last chapter for today. The conditions of the validity of the prayer are six. In the madhab. In other madhahib, they may have more, they may have less. But in the madhab, there are six conditions. What's a condition? We learned this from Usul al-Fiqh. مَا يَلْزَمُ مِنْ عَدَمِهِ الْعَدَمْ I love that tarif. That's my I love it. I love it so much. It's like one that I even make an effort to remember because it's just, it's really, really nice and easy to remember, but it's also a little bit like it requires a bit of thought about what it means. Okay? Its absence necessitates absence, but its presence doesn't necessitate presence. That's not just the usuli in trying to make you feel confused on a Friday morning. Yani. That is actually a good definition. Yani. Its absence means that the act of worship will not be, yani, will not be there. You, will not be, you're, you, you cannot do it. But it being there doesn't mean that the act of worship is necessarily complete. So its absence means the act of worship is invalid. But it being there, its presence doesn't necessarily mean that the act of worship is valid. So take as an example for that, At-Tahara, being in a state of purification. I'm in a state of wudu. If I'm not in a state of wudu, can I pray? No, my prayer will not be accepted. If I'm in a state of wudu, does that necessarily mean that my prayer is always accepted? Just because I'm in a state of wudu? No, I might not be facing the qibla, I might not be standing up, I might not have done sujood, I might not have done ruku'. So just the fact that I'm in wudu doesn't mean that I am necessarily my prayer is going to be accepted. 
But if I'm not in wudu, my prayer will definitely not be accepted. So when it's not there, it's not there. And when it's there, it doesn't necessarily mean that the act of worship is accepted by Allah. But it just sounds nice in Arabic anyway. So the conditions of the validity of the prayer are six in the madhab. Number one, Taharatul Hadath. He mentions Taharatul Hadath, okay? Uh, but he doesn't mention, and it is in here somewhere, and I'll find it in a minute. Uh, he doesn't mention. Zawal Khabath, but okay. Taharatul Hadath, Wataqaddamat. He said, purification from impurities, and this has already been mentioned. So we went back to what conditions are. Conditions are those things which, if they are not there, if they are not there, If they are not there, then the, then the prayer will automatically be invalid. And they are things that relate to, to the person who is praying. So the first one is that the person must be pure of a state of impurity. And they must be in a state where they have purity. And the reason they use purity and not wudu is because what if somebody needs ghusl? If they need ghusl, wudu is not enough. So the person must have made ghusl if they need it and wudu if they need it ghusl if they need it and wudu if they need it and this has already been mentioned what he doesn't mention here and I was fairly sure that it is mentioned somewhere in, in the original text is that there should be no impurity on the prayer place and the body yani but unless he either includes that in the first condition or either he's just summarizing here and later on he explains it in more detail. But in any case, that is also included or understood to be included. The second one, Dukhul al-Waqt. That the time for the prayer should have started. And the prayer is never accepted. And I'm going to read you the text from... Uh, from Kafi al-Mubtadi, he says, الثاني دخول الوقت ولا تصح قبله بحال It is never ever accepted before the prayer time comes. No matter what the excuse is. I was sick, so I prayed five minutes early. The plane was about to leave. The, it, there's no way that the prayer can be accepted even 30 seconds before the time begins. And the reason I emphasize that is you do see some people in this regard, maybe don't appreciate that as much as they should. So especially when it comes to flights. Oh, there's, there's you know, five minutes before the Bismillah. We'll, we'll just make a start. You can't do that. If you pray even 30 seconds before the time of the prayer has started, then the prayer is invalid. Then he talks about the prayer times. He breaks it down to the prayer times. He says, the time of Dhuhr is from 
Az-Zawal. From Az-Zawal meaning after Zawal. Yani after Zawal has finished until something, until an object, um, yani an, an object standing up, the shadow of the object standing up is equal to its length. With the exception of the shadow that comes at Zawal time. Okay, so we have to just go through that a little bit. Okay, so it starts at Zawal. What is Zawal? Zawal is when the, sh when the sun moves from the middle of the sky. Okay, so the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Okay, the sun is rising in the east. As it's rising in the east, when it first rises, you have a very long shadow in the west. So in the early morning, you have a very long shadow pointing west. Your shadow gets shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter until it's at the shortest that it possibly can be. At this point, the sun is directly overhead. You may still have a shadow in winter. And that is what it means with the exception of the shadow of Zawal. Yani the shadow of Zawal is not counted in the length of the shadow. When we're measuring the length of the shadow, we minus the length that it is at Zawal time. So for example, at Zawal time, it's not really drastically important, but at Zawal time, your shadow is like one centimeter. Okay, that one centimeter is not counted in measuring the shadow later on, at Asr time or whatever. Once the shadow becomes equal to the height of the object standing up, so there's, an, there's a, a protruding object, that's the word I was looking for for a Muntasib, a protruding object, an object that protrudes out of the ground, it stands like a tree or a whatever, any a lamppost or a, you know, even a person protruding out of the ground, that protruding object, the shadow is equal to its length minus the length that it was at, you're not including the length that it was at Zawal. Or, not, or without regard to the length it was at Zawal. And he wants it's the same length, it's the same length, but the issue is that don't uh, yani ignore the zawal, the, the shadow that exists at zawal. Then this is the, the dhuhr time is once the sun has moved past its middle point. So as soon as you start getting any lengthening of shadow to the uh, east, because the sun is now gonna it's gonna set in the west. As soon as your shadow starts to move even a millimeter to the east, this is the time that dhuhr begins. This is zawal has gone. Zawal yani zalat al shams. The sun has gone from the middle, started to move, so your shadow starts to increase again. That shadow that starts to increase again, and it increased to the direction of the east, as soon as that happens, it's Dhuhr time. Until the shadow becomes equal in length to its height. And that is the, cor the correct time, or the chosen time, or the preferable time for Asr. When he says, Al-Mukhtar, or Al-Ikhtiyar, this means the time when it is not an emergency. So they use a darura for the time which is the emergency time. And they use al-mukhtar or al-ikhtiyar for the time when it is preferable to pray asr. Or it is obligatory. We would almost say it's obligatory because in the madhab it's obligatory to pray asr at this time. So the chosen time for asr is until 
the shadow of the object is double its length, with the exception of zawal. Now this tells you the problem which we have because we know that the, the mashhur, the madhab, the Hanafi madhab, the well-known opinion in the madhab is that asr starts when the object is twice, the shadow is twice, twice the length of the object. In the Hanbali madhab, that is the end of asr. And this creates the problem. Because in effect, once the adhan goes off at the, the Hanafi time for praying, and the 20 minutes goes before the people pray the salah, the time for asr has ended according to the Hanbali madhab. And you have prayed beyond the time, and you are, you are sinful. Taban, the person who is muqallid and follows his madhab because that is all that he knows, is not sinful in the first place because he, his sheikh told him that is the time for asr, that is the time for asr. But the issue is, this is an issue where usually the differences between the madhahib are relatively benign. Yani in the sense that you're not going to like, you know, destroy your akhirah or something like that. This is one of them where the, the difference of opinion is not benign. It's a serious difference of opinion. Because according to the Hanbalis, you are sinful. And according to some of the madahib, the time for Asr Aslan, they don't recognize the darura time, the emergency time. So according to them, the time for Asr is over. Yani you have deliberately delayed Asr beyond its time if you pray at the time when the Hanafis pray. According to this madhab. Again, the issue of who is correct and who is not correct and is there an emergency time, that is a different issue. But it's important to note because it's one of those differences of opinion that is not easy like to just ignore and say, oh, never mind, you know, we, we all praying, inshallah, within the time. Because by the time they allow 20 minutes between the adhan, yes, if you prayed at the adhan, you just about can catch the, the time at their adhan, you can just about catch the time of asr. But once they, the time they leave for their iqamah, the asr time has gone, according to the jumhur, the majority from the Hanabila, the Malikiyah, and the Shafi'iyah, the time has gone. And some of the other madahib are worse than the Hanabila, because at least the Hanabila say you can still get a valid prayer when you pray at that time. Your prayer is valid, but you're sinful. In some of the other madahib, the prayer is asr in the first place, not valid at that time. And it's qada. You left the time of asr, and you're praying at the time which is qada. You're praying at a time which you have left the time of Asr. As we said, the one who prays at that time, because that is what they believe to be the correct understanding of the Sunnah, or because that is what they have been told by their teacher and they're not able to come to the correct conclusion, is not sinful in the first place. But the, it's an issue for you if you believe that the correct time is when the shadow is equal to one time its length, you can't, when you travel to a country where they pray at two times the length, you can't wait for the jama'ah. Because you are deliberately delaying the prayer beyond its possible time. And this comes back to the ruling of what you do when the, when the authorities pray beyond the time. And yani, there is a difference of opinion in that. Some of them say that what you do is you pray on your own at the prayer time. You pray a jama'ah by yourself and then you go and join them in their jama'ah after that. And it depends on whether that's across the country or whether it's only certain masajid. If it's certain masajid, you just choose the masjid that prays at the earlier time. But if all of the masajid in that area, and if the ruler enforces upon them to pray late, then this is the issue where you look at whether or not you should go and pray in their jama'ah out of you know, joining the Muslims and, and what have you. But you have to pray before that if you believe that the time for asr has ended. As for the emergency time, the emergency time is until the sun 
sets. And according to the Hanabila, you can still pray after the shadow is twice its length, but you're into the emergency time. After that, Maghrib lasts until the redness of the sky disappears. Shafaq al-Ahmar. That is the red sort of wiggle in the sky that comes from where the sun has set. When that disappears, the time for Isha begins. And after that, Isha lasts until, and it's again in the madhab, the first third of the night. The first third of the night. So in the Hanbali madhab, Isha is not, you might have heard the famous opinion that it is until half the night, but in the madhab, it is until the first third of the night. If you delay it beyond the first third of the night, then you are sinful, but your prayer is still valid up until the second adhan of fajr any meaning the 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 proper adhan of fajr the real fajr or the real time of fajr he doesn't mention the adhan because the adhan may be given on time or not given on time but the the actual time of fajr when the second fajr comes that is the fajr that spreads along the horizon not the one that goes up and down the one that spreads wide along the horizon. This is known as the second Fajr or the true Fajr. A third of the night is calculated from Maghrib until Fajr. So the time from Maghrib until Fajr divided by three. The time from Maghrib until the time for Fajr divided by three, the first third of the night. And the one after that is Fajr until Shuruq, until the time when the sun begins to rise. So Shuruq is the time when the sun, the edge of the ball of the sun is visible. As soon as you can see anything from the sun on the horizon, because at Fajr time you can't. At Fajr you can see light. You can maybe even see lots of light. But as soon as you see the ball of the sun, anything from it, even just the tip of the sun, that is Shuruq. And that continues until the sun rises uh, to the height of a spear. And we've talked about that before. Okay. He then says, And you are considered to have prayed as long as you make takbiratul ihram inside of the time. So even if the only thing you do is to say Allahu Akbar before the sun rises, you've caught Fajr. Even if all of your qira'ah and your sajda and your ruku' and your salam is after the sun has risen, but you manage to say Allahu Akbar, then you have matched, you have made the time. However, it is haram to deliberately delay it to a time where you will not be able to pray the full prayer. So for example, Someone says for Fajr, I'm going to pray Fajr, let's see. On the time Shuruq is here, 6.31. So he says, I'm going to start praying Fajr at 6.28. He knows he will not finish the entire prayer within three minutes. He has three minutes until the sun rises. And he knows he will not finish the entire prayer within those three minutes. This is haram. But the prayer is valid. Prayer is correct. But the person is sinful for delaying the prayer to such a time that they would not be able to complete the prayer 
in that time. And the person is forbidden from praying until one of two things happen. He is certain that the prayer time has begun. Or he believes he's not able to be certain, but he has ghalabatul He is that he's it's preponderant in his mind. And he believes that it's the most likely. So there's two situations. Either you're certain or either you're not certain. If you're not certain and you're not able to be certain, it's not like someone's gonna come in two minutes who's gonna tell you the answer. This often happens when you're on the plane. You're not able to be completely certain because your prayer timetable doesn't work properly and you don't exactly know which city you're over. You're not able to be completely certain, but you, are, you have ghalabat al It's your preponderant opinion. And you're like, I, I believe, remember, ghalabat al means that if you weigh the two issues up, the fact that the prayer time has started is heavier than the fact that it hasn't started yet. It's more likely in your mind that it has started than it hasn't started. This is called it being preponderant in your mind it's the most likely thing in your mind when you weigh up the issues it's the one that you believe is, is most likely to be true however what do you do if you have and yet you are wrong in this case you repeat the prayer if you realize that you are wrong in the madhab you repeat the prayer if you realize that you are wrong. So you thought it was Fajr. You couldn't be sure. You didn't have any prayer timetable or anything like that. But you looked and you thought it's, yeah, it, it's Fajr. And you prayed Fajr. But then when you reached your destination and you asked, you realized that you prayed Fajr earlier than the time. In this case, you have to repeat the Fajr prayer because the Fajr prayer that you prayed was not on time. And whoever becomes, and again it's kind of repeated, but it's, it's useful. Whoever becomes in a state where they are required to pray before the prayer time has ended, even by the length of Allahu Akbar, they are required to pray that prayer and they're required to pray whatever is before it. So this most is commonly is for the ladies who uh, finish their menses. If they finish their menses, even the length of one takbirah before Maghrib, they are required to pray Dhuhr and Asr and Maghrib. But of course they cannot pray that in, in Asr time because they only, yani one second, she became pure one second before uh, Maghrib. So she became pure one second before Maghrib. She has to pray Dhuhr and Asr and Maghrib. But obviously Dhuhr and Asr will be past the time because she has no choice by the time she makes Ghusl and by the time she makes wudu and by the time she comes out and she uh, starts praying, for sure she will have missed the time of Dhuhr and Asr. But they become obligatory for her. Whereas the, the woman, she doesn't make up her prayers. She's not going to make up the Fajr from that day. Because the entire time passed and she was still menstruating. All of the time for Fajr passed, she was still menstruating. But if she stops even an, a minute before Fajr, uh, before Fajr ends, that Fajr prayer becomes in her right. If she stops a minute before Maghrib, 
then Dhuhr and Asr both become prayers that she has to pray. And she's not sinful. Because not in her ability. And she will make ghusl and she will pray Dhuhr and Asr at Maghrib time. Dhuhr and Asr and then Maghrib at Maghrib time. This is what he's going to talk about now. And it is obligatory to make up the missed prayers fawran immediately. You cannot say, oh, I missed the prayer. Um, you know, I missed the prayer. But, uh, you know, never mind. I'll, I'll make it up tomorrow. Inshallah, I'll make some time tomorrow. Or I'll make it up in the middle of the night. Or let me just... No, fawran. You have to do it immediately. Yani straight away. As soon as you realize you missed a prayer, you forgot, you were unconscious, you slept in, uh, the lady finishes her menses, immediately she has to make ghusl and immediately she has to make up dhuhr and asr at maghrib time. And she has to make them up in order. Meaning at maghrib time, she first prays dhuhr and then asr and then maghrib unless one of the three, three things happen. This is for everyone, the woman and everybody else in this situation. Either the person is fearful of harm. So this person has been unconscious for like three years. Okay? In a coma. And they woke up. Now they have to make up all of their prayers. They have to make them up fawran. Yani they have to make them up right away. But it's obvious that that person will not be able to pray all of these weeks and months of prayers in one go. So in this case, they have to make them up yani, to the maximum amount that will not cause harm to them in their body or harm to them in their family. Meaning that like, you know, I, I haven't gone to work for six months because I'm making up my prayers for the last three years. Yani. Like instead, the person goes to work, but in all of their free time, they are just making up prayers as long as they don't come to harm. Or they forgot, because the person and you said, oh, I, I've, you know, they, let's, they, they, they start praying Asr, and they're starting praying Asr, and they're praying with him, oh, I didn't pray Dhuhr. Okay, they continue praying Asr, and then they pray Dhuhr, because this is a case where they don't have to do them in order, because they forgot. And the third, and this is important, they fear that the time for the prayer including the obligatory time, so not just the emergency time, including the, the, the chosen time, if they fear that time is going to go. So this person, the time for Asr is about to go. Or let's say Isha. The time for Isha is about, the, the first third of the night is about to go. And they haven't prayed Maghrib. In this case, they pray Isha first, because the first third of the night is about to go, and then they pray Maghrib. Otherwise, they would pray Maghrib and then Isha. This is for the one who forgets or makes a prayer, the one who is joining between them. The one who is joining between them prays Maghrib and then Isha. As we mentioned earlier, illa man or man lahul except the one who has the right to join between them with the intention of joining. That person prays them in order even if the time for Isha is going to end. Yani they start Maghrib and then Isha. But the one who forgets Oh, I didn't pray Maghrib. But it's about Isha is about to end. They pray Isha first and then they pray Maghrib. Uh, that's about all that, that we have time for. Uh, there, are other, there are six conditions and there are still like a few pages left in the conditions. Yani, just to briefly cover what the 
major conditions are Satrul Aura, covering the Aura, and then he goes on to talk about what the Aura is. Keeping away from an Najasa. I knew it came somewhere. I was sure it came somewhere. Keeping away from an Najasa, except for Al Ma'fu Anha, the one that is so small that it cannot be like it, it cannot be helped or it can't be noticed or it can't be avoided. Like the one who is imprisoned in a place of Najasat. Wallah, the fuqaha, they speak about this. The one who is imprisoned in a prison cell and the prison cell is covered with unclean substances. What does he do? He prays. Because the Najasa is ma'foon anha. It's forgiven because he could not do anything to avoid it. The fifth one, istiqbal qibla, facing the qibla. And the sixth one, anniya, the intention. And he mentions with regard to anniya that uh, it is a bid'ah to say the niya out loud with any words. The niya, and uh, he talks a lot about the niya uh, and uh, whether the prayer is invalid when the imam's prayer is invalid and all this other stuff. So this is the end of what we were able to do from Salah. There's a lot more left in the, in the topic of Salah, but these are the key masail. And I just want to kind of emphasize one thing. One of the things you can really benefit from in studying this book from beginning to end, and I really have an intention, if Allah makes it easy, I would love to have a class, a regular weekly class, to finish this book from beginning to end, and to mention some of the dalil, and also to mention the rajih, like to mention the time when the madhab is wrong. I would love to do it, but one of the things this book is extremely useful, and all of the books of the madhab are useful for, are teaching you the masail that you should know the answer to. You know, as a talib ilm, this is the minimum you should know the correct opinion of. And if you don't yet know the correct opinion in all of these issues, then it shows that you still have some work to do in your study. Because really you should know for each of these issues what the correct opinion is. For you to be a, you know, to be a good student who is, you know, a strong student who is studying and learning and someone who has really, you know, embraced fiqh, the minimum standard is you should know the correct answer to all of the issues raised in a basic text like this. You know, this issue of do we choose the imam who, you know, if they all have the same Quran and the same sunnah and the same, you know, whatever, do we choose the imam with the longest beard or do we choose the imam with the prettiest wife and all of these, these are, these are not, yani, these are masail that are not important. Yani, you'll find them in the books of fiqh. What do you do if the both wives are the same in beauty? Do you pick the imam? Yani, this is like, these are masail are like, in the books of fiqh, but they're not essential. They're not like, they're not, your religion doesn't, you know, isn't based upon these masail. However, these ones in this book that are the fundamental issues, these fundamental issues, you as a student should know the correct opinion in each one of these issues. You should be confident that you know the rajih and ideally, if you want to be, you know, the next level, you should know the rajih and the dalil. I should know the correct opinion and I should know one evidence for that correct opinion. Does the Imam Salah, when Imam, if the Imam breaks wudu, is the Salah of all of the people invalid? Or is only the Salah of the Imam invalid? You should know the correct opinion and the Dalil. And wallah, the biggest thing we have is that subhanallah, many of the Tulab al-Im and wallah, and I include myself in this, and subhanallah, we go through some of these Masail and we think, if I don't know just the correct opinion and the dalil, and the one who knows a correct opinion and a dalil is not faqih, is not considered to be faqih. The one who only knows the correct opinion and the evidence, 
You can't say this person is a faqih, is a scholar of fiqh. But the minimum you should be to be a decent student, at least that you know the correct opinion in each one of these issues. Because these are basic fundamental issues of knowing, you know, of being able to practice your religion. So inshallah ta'ala next week we're probably going to go on to, I would think, zakah, just for the purpose of Yani for everyone to, you know, to get a feeling about some of the issues of zakah. And then inshallah ta'ala, when we uh, have taken the exam and we go into the next side, we're going to go a little bit more slowly and we're going to go through transactions and try and go through them in order as much as we can. We'll start with nikah and then talaq and then buying and selling until we can, you know, as much as we can reach because I feel those are things that people probably don't know uh, as much about as they should, yani. But these are the basics that I'm not saying every Muslim should know, but you know, like every student of knowledge should know the, the answer to these issues. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best.